Welcome back to The Secret Life of Leaders, where you get unprecedented access to the inner workings of Australia's leading thinkers and practitioners at the forefront of environmental, social and governance change. The cutting edge of change can often feel lonely, but you're not alone here. The Secret Life of Leaders rehumanizes the experience of life and leadership and creates a platform for us all to learn and grow together. Let's dive in. When you're solving big, good quality problems in the world, it's likely you need broad and deep stakeholder engagement. In this episode of The Secret Life of Leaders, we're speaking with Nick Rakus, a facilitation colleague of mine and a collaborator on a recent project that was massively successful. Here we jam about what stakeholder engagement really is and is not, what makes for a successful project, and in particular, how to work with facilitators and really get the most out of our services. We explore his leadership standards, systems, and appetite for developing others alongside how he takes care of himself as a business owner. To next level, how you think about, design, and facilitate events designed to engage people and solve problems, tune in to this episode of The Secret Life of Leaders with Nick Rakus. Nick Rakus, welcome to The Secret Life of Leaders. How are you doing? I'm good, Ange. It's good to be here. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Let's start at the beginning, Nick. You lead a company called Acelio and you help good leaders create change, good change, positive change in the world at speed. And you do this by facilitating complex, often multidisciplinary, multi-party, problem-solving style conversations. Mm. How did you find yourself here? By accident. (laughs) So how did I find myself here? You know, working through one problem at a time. And so, you know, we started off by, you know, running really simple workshops and programs, you know, to help employees in the corporate world be more innovative or create change or in the science and research space, help scientists create more impact in the work that they do. And we got good at creating programs that educated those types of people to do that. And then we started lifting up. And so we naturally started to go up the levels, I guess, in dealing with more complex challenges. And then eventually we find ourselves being in smaller rooms, not bigger ones, working with different sets of stakeholders that are grappling with questions that they don't have answers to. Yeah. And we don't either. So, yeah, that's one step at a time. There was no plan. So you've yeah. been you've been very humble there. You find yourself in these rooms with people solving really good quality challenges in the world. Just for our listeners, what does Acelio actually do to support those conversations? So there's a couple things. So when we have leaders come to us and they generally will say, we, we need a facilitator and we're running a workshop mm. <laughs> and we go, great, let's, let's have a conversation around that. And usually it's around trying to understand what an ideal result looks like for the challenge that they're trying to solve for. And so, you know, we tend to go through a process by, I guess, getting them to clarify through more questions and also we're working through it with them to figure out why they've got all these people in the room and what, what, what the hell are they going to do with all these minds in this room and what are they trying to achieve? And so, we support them by, first of all, acknowledging that we don't have the answers. Mm. And so, we come at it from a very agnostic point of view to say what's what's the type of questions that we need to be thinking about 
why do you need these people in the room? Why this conversation? Why this space? And I guess we challenge them a bit about what, what I use this terminology, what does an ideal result look like at the end of this? And a lot of the times they don't know and the, the process is we're there to help them figure it out and we're figuring it out with them yep. in partnership. So I think this is a really misunderstood or perhaps an even underdeveloped aspect of facilitation because when a company does approach people like you and I and they say, I want a facilitator for a workshop, mm. that is what they believe that they want. Mm. And no one has really held space for them to ask and answer the questions of what is the ideal result mm. and why this group of people, what are they bringing? What are the unique challenges that we're likely to face as we tackle the problem in the room? What, how do we design the process so that we can logically step through a formulation or an exploration of the question before us? So I think in terms of facilitation approaches, I think it's a, like a, in my experience, it's a common misconception that a facilitator turns up in the room and runs through the agenda and manages the timings and that that's yeah. all there is to it. There's a massive lead up. There's the, certainly the delivery on the day and there's quite often some synthesis and write up and consulting that follows. So, yeah. And I know Acelio offers that whole package of, mm. of work. Yeah. And it's not a surprise. Like I used to find it. I used to try and use all these different words to try and articulate how we would help these leaders. But I've realized now that the, you know, when they say they need a facilitator or they, they need a workshop, it's not for them to know what they need. They're just saying, we've got to bring these people together and we see that thing on the shelf yeah. and we start there. And I think our role is helping them understand what they do need in that process and working with them on that. And there's different types of leaders. Some leaders are willing to go that way and say, we want to partner with you and we want to, we want to work through that messiness and we want to co-design or we want to co-create that together. There are other leaders that just say, I just want a facilitator. I need to get this thing done. And that's okay. Yeah. We, we help them, but we're much more focused on the ones that want, no, it's not that straightforward. Yeah. And so they, they go, well, we need all the help that we can get yep. because this is actually a really hard thing to do. So, Nick, you and I met maybe, what, three or four months ago now for the first time. No, we, were, we were matchmaked. We were matchmade yeah, by yeah. people smarter than us, I reckon. <laughs> and they gave us the job of working together, and we'd never worked together before, and it was to facilitate a national-scale mm. process over three months. I think there were about nine days of workshopping yeah. in total, some of it, a lot of it online and a lot of it some of it face-to-face as well. And there was some, there were some certain things about that process, I reckon, that really made it work well. Mm. And I just thought we could bounce around, like what we, what cool. we might yeah. think around what made that process work so well. Mm. Do you want to go first? The, the first thing is it's, it's counterintuitive, but it's a small group. So I think what happens a lot of the time is we start processes with the intent of being collaborative but we involve too many people too quickly. And so I think we started with very deliberately, I think with a small group and we kept it small, not to exclude people, but to try and work through the messiness to formulate a view of what we're trying to do. And then we engage the broader group. So I think keeping it small makes it work better. But making sure the right people are in, even at the start in that small team. Yep. So it's being really considerate about who are the key people that need to be here from the beginning 
and we can always include others, but what's the role that they're covering and do we have the right people in the room? Yep, small team, right people, role clarity. Correct, yeah. Yep, love it. I would add to that, in that particular work that we did together, there was distributed leadership right from the beginning and that means we quickly came to understand what is each of us good at and Mm. why were we brought into this core project team, this small group. And then we quickly assumed the responsibilities for the Mm. things that we were good at. Mm. Sometimes we had to stretch out on things that we weren't yet good at. (laughs) (laughs) And then we, the other part of this is that we went off and did the work. We collaborated. We trusted each other to do really good quality work and then bring it back in and have that work that we were bringing back into the Mm. group be tested and tossed around and iterated and it got messy Mm. and we kept showing up to that iterative process. Yeah. yeah. And we we had the tolerance to sit in the mess together before the clarity emerged. Mm. That's how I remember it. Yeah, Yeah, I would would agree. And I think- when you say that one, that, like there's misconceptions that come to my mind because people people say, oh, we do that. Like we're collaborative and we bring people together and, you know, we work through. I think when I think about the process, I think there, even though it's messy and we're iterative, there's there's a degree of discipline and there's a plan. Oh, yes. Even if the plan's not right because you know through iterations that you're going to adjust the plan very quickly. But I think this idea that, and I, I used to be in this space where, oh, we just, let's just bring people together. And that's collaboration and that's how we make stuff happen. I think it's it's a bit of, I don't say BS, but I don't think it works that well. I think what works well is, you framed it really well, you know, di- distributive leadership. You know, what are, the, what are the joint responsibilities and commitments? How do we work together? Where are we going? And then how do we adjust in that process and hold each other accountable to that? Yep. Versus like, let's all just get together yep. and see what sticks. I think that- you're going to get much more progress being deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. So, Aselio, I know, and I've actually learned quite a bit from working with you and your people on this project. You have quite a structure. (laughs) (laughs) You have quite a structured run-up to a workshop and are quite systematized. Mm. And so it's not just collaboration by accident. It's collaboration within a really safe container and structured container that you have Mm. created to lead us into that workshop experience. So I think that's another element that worked really well from this facilitation. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's kind of counterintuitive because you think structure and discipline is stifles creativity and collaboration. That's what most people would say. But actually, I'm a big believer of constraints. So I, I think of it and say, well, no, if you set constraints in place, which is through discipline and structure, then you have creativity that flourishes around those constraints and we had we had constraints we have x amount of weeks to get this done and how do we think out of the box around what we need to do who we need to bring in and knowing that we're not going to get a perfect result but if we didn't have those constraints we would have probably taken a very different approach yep so i think in structure and in that you still have creativity and and that collaboration whereas sometimes i see this a lot where there's a reluctance to do that because maybe it's like, well, it feels a bit rigid or maybe we're going to like nudge people the wrong in the wrong direction. But if you're serious about the change, yep. there's a saying with the emergency services, you know, like if there's a fire brigade that comes in or if there's if there's a emergency that happens, an earthquake or something, these emergency services don't come in and say to everyone, hey, this is what we need to do. They come in and they say, you, like you need to go and do that. 
you, you need to go and do that. So very clear direction and responsibility, even though we're in a state of chaos to a degree. Yep. There's still structure and there's, some, there's still, you know, some discipline around that. Yep. But I'm a big believer of that because I don't think it's talked enough. I think I'm no expert on complex adaptive systems, but there is a topic of interest within that around boundary objects. Mm. And that is to have reference points in a process that are stable, that indicate what's in scope and what's out of scope. Mm. Where are the milestones in the process? Where are the important aspects of this system that we want to influence? And what happens in the space between those boundary objects can be unplanned and mm. can be emergent and creative and collaborative and mm. genuinely co-creative in yeah. the space between. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. What else worked about this big process that we did together? There was enough trust where we made mistakes, but there was enough trust to know that we're not going to get penalized for them because you're moving so fast and you're iterating and you're testing and you're learning. And with that needs to be a tolerance of, well, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to have to learn from that. And I think if you don't have trust in that group or you don't feel safe, then you're going to be really reluctant to lean into that and say, well, this is, you know, we did we did this with the best of intent to try and get the best outcome right, even though we know maybe we didn't get it right the first time. And I think I, I haven't had a lot of engagements where that is really on the table, you know. So it was lovely to see that we had that. I don't know there was, you know, the group or how we went into it, but there was trust and there was tolerance of, of not getting it right because we are – we're doing the best that we can. Yeah. Let me attempt to sort of connect some concepts around that trust that I've been thinking about. And that, that there was, you know, we were all in service to a big, important question, like an existential question mm. of national significance. Like we're doing this not just for us. Mm. We're doing it for our collective good. Mm. And so there was some real like mission and meaning and purpose behind this process we were running. So there was that. And I think there was also the assumption, and it was through the language we used, it was through the way that we were invited into the project by the organisation that contracted us both in, Mm -hmm. a very positive language which engendered this sort of spirit of goodwill Mm. that we're all here for the right reason, we're all actually giving it our best and Mm. we acknowledge that. And when we did make mistakes, I saw the team investigate those and be accountable and have very clear forthright forthcoming communication Mm. around hey we buggered that up Mm. we're investigating it Mm. leave it with us we'll come back to you and Mm. we'll assure you of you know how we're going to fix this going forward and that transparency Mm. i think only allowed that trust to grow throughout the process so yeah yeah. and it reminds me of patrick lincioni's like the five dysfunctions of a team you know they talk about you know lack of trust and then lack of accountability and i think what what we did well there, exactly what you described was even though we things got buggered up, there was accountability with that. Yep. And then and then there was an intent of saying, okay, let's now improve on it next time. Yep. You know, as part of the, the broader commitment. So yeah. And this was not a team that had come together. So the thing that was interesting for me was we'd never worked together before, but we seemed to have worked pretty well. Yeah. For a team that got put together an all-star team essentially. <laughs> Maybe that was the the clients smarter than us could see it. But so I kind of go, what, what, what made it work and how come so many other teams or engagements just become so difficult? You know, what are the ingredients that, that make that shift? Because I don't actually think it's significant. I think they're minor things, yeah. not like really big, really big things. 
I reckon part of what made it work was this bigger mission and purpose meant that we needed to subordinate all of our fears, Mm. all Mm -hmm. of our egos, Mm -hmm. all of our, you know, past experiences and Mm. comfortable practices. They were all subordinated to this bigger mission and purpose and the timeframes and the constraints that we Mm. have and the goodwill of the team that was brought together. And we're like, right, let's just, let's get stuck into this. And I think that mojo that mood extended to our participants Mm. so we did seven online workshops we had like five breakout rooms in the online workshop five breakout facilitators five scribes one in each you know a breakout facilitator and a scribe in each room and then we had a core project team of about 30 really on the call yeah and then we invited in another 30 or 40 participants Mm. to each call and there were seven of those And the feedback from those online workshops was, oh, my goodness, I enjoyed that so much. The time went so fast. That's the best. People were saying, this floats my boat, that that was the best online workshop experience that they've Mm. ever had. It was Mm. coming through thick and fast in the comments at the end of the day and, and closing. And I think once we could convey the goodwill of our project team and the trust and the acceptance of, you know, little blips here and there because it's not an online online workshop Mm. without a blip. Mm. And it sort of kind of spread out to the participants Mm. and we assumed their good intent and they assumed ours. Mm. And I think that was like a really – it was actually a really special experience Mm. to facilitate. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was good. Even even creating online engagements are hard. So, when people say that was the best thing, you know – and I, and I think this is my opinion, but I think I think they say the best. This is this is what I take from it. Not because we're we're doing such a great job. I think it's because they feel effective in the dialogue that they're having. And when it's not great, or if they come in workshops and they say this wasn't great, it's not about an individual. It's that they weren't effective in the conversations that they were having, or they weren't clear on the conversations that they're having. So I think for me, the the best is we contributed to the conversation we knew what we were talking about we knew why we were there and we felt that that was a really good use of our time yeah so good quality questions contributed to that asking them really quite focused good quality questions to allow them to bring forward their best contribution and then i think the reassurance that every contribution was captured Mm. and taken seriously and considered so Mm. yeah yeah. All right. We um, killed it. We killed it. <laughs> and then we took the cream of the crop. Well, actually, we just took probably who was available, but also the cream of the crop mm. to uh, a face-to-face, two-day face-to-face workshop yeah. in a like a massive ballroom mm. in, another, in another state and did some more complex problem solving. Mm. And the feedback from that two-day workshop that I got, I don't know, you can tell me what you got, mm. was things like, They've never seen participants so energized Mm. after, throughout and after a two-day workshop. And people were saying things like, that is the best workshop experience Mm. through the online workshops and the face-to-face that they've had in their 30-year career. Yeah. And I'm going to ask, like, what do you you think? (laughs) Right? I know, we're going to frame that. Yeah. What do you think made this work so well in the face-to-face facilitation? I do think it helps having pre-work. So, because because we did, you know, the virtual workshops were an input into the face-to-face one, you've got a baseline knowledge and understanding. And even if even if the individuals weren't part of that, they, they can come to terms with that pretty quickly. So, 
I think coming from a good starting point helps, especially when you're dealing with complex problems because there's nothing worse than putting people in a room and saying, we're solving the biggest problem and then go. Like think hard. You know, it it takes time. So, So I think the prep and that's not only from us, like there was a tremendous amount of work done in the background for the preparation and I think... We we underestimate that with workshops sometimes. We just say, hey, let's put people together instead of saying, no, what needs to happen before we come to the room? Yes. You know, so so I think that really helped. I think the personally speaking, but it's our style, is, you know, how do we create visual artifacts to help people communicate? So there's a gentleman that I I followed and studied for a long time, Alexander Ostwald, who writes these books called Business Model Canvas and and you know, he has this card that says, you know, blah, 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 you know, no, no more blah, blah, blah. And the idea is that when you're dealing with complex problems, speaking is not a good mechanism. You, you need a lot more behind the conversation to aid the, the communication so that people can communicate more effectively. And so you need to layer communication with tools and frameworks and visual aids and all that to help bring everything out so that people can not only talk, but they can point and so on. And so I think using... You know, we said like hands, hearts, and minds, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Then people feel fully engaged. And they might not know why, but they're, ta- they're, they're touching things, they're engaging with things, they're pointing at things, they, they, they've got reference points that they can refer to. And then that, bril- that builds common ground because they can say, okay, now we feel that we are on common ground. We have an understanding because we're pointing to that thing and we can communicate. And yeah. so I think that... That's the ultimate piece of engagement. People walking away saying, we feel that we're on the same page. And it doesn't always work well, but you, you're you trying to put all those artifacts in place to create a rich environment for them. So I think when you've got complex topics like that, you need to put all those ingredients in mm. to help people grapple with what they're dealing with. Because there's so many different points of view. We talked a lot about different perspectives. There's thousands of perspectives that get brought and most of the time they're hidden to us. We don't really know what perspective we're looking at things at. Yep. So I think giving them that is like a mirror so they can look, go, oh, actually, I'm thinking of it from this perspective. So for me, it's all those visual elements that help them have good conversation. Yeah. yeah. There's so many ingredients. I'm hoping our listeners are picking this up. If you're running an engagement series or important discussions to contribute to complex problem solving, you want to be noting down the ingredients that we're talking about here around engaging facilitators if your process requires it the pre-work the run-up the iteration the crafting of the questions Mm -hmm. the crafting of like the process design the visual materials getting the right people in the room and Mm -hmm. I think I'm not sure if you've noticed this Nick but conversations where we can invite the most powerful actors with the most agency and the most Mm. goodwill create really you know powerful results Mm. and I think sometimes we are scared of inviting those powerful players into our rooms in case we can't manage what goes on there have you noticed people sort of shying away from having the most powerful conversations possible for that reason yeah I don't know why because they're humans and they don't have all the answers. At least I don't, I don't think they do with the cha- some of the when you're dealing with these kind of complex challenges. Yeah. And I think they would value the input or sh- to share their perspective and to say, hey, you know, this is what we're looking for. So I don't, I don't know why there's a reluctance there. I mean, I know why, but I, don't, I actually don't at the same time yeah. because I just think, why are we letting this get in the way of a bigger challenge or a bigger mission? Hmm. You know, these are small things that we're letting get in the way when we should be 
focusing on the bigger picture and then bringing people into that. I think a good facilitator will play that leveling role of there may be hierarchy mm. in this room. You know, in the rooms that we were in, there were you know, researchers, there were policymakers, there were business leaders and industry mm. leaders. Yeah. And certainly there was there were hierarchies within mm. that room. I think a good facilitator will help you level out mm. and bring it back to, you know, the core the core essence of this is our shared humanity and our shared goodwill and our shared willingness to approach and solve mm. this problem together and to set aside some of our preconceptions and assumptions and comfort zones mm. to become slightly uncomfortable and step into that genuine environment of co-creation where we don't know what's going to happen. Mm. We don't know what other people are going to bring and how that's going to interact with what we bring and mm. what might emerge from that kind of conversation. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Anything else to say on that big process and why it was so damn good? I don't think so. There's nothing that comes to mind. No. Yep, awesome. Okay. So... Just to close out this sort of conversation around facilitation and then I want to move to your own leadership style. Mm. You've been doing this for a while. What are the biggest lessons, the biggest takeaways from facilitating complex conversations that our audience could really benefit from? The biggest lessons. I mean, I might have a little bit of a, I don't know, contrarian view on some of this stuff because I, so I'll, I'm thinking about these are my lessons, yeah. you know, my experiences, but you need to be comfortable with intellectual debate and you need to be comfortable pushing the boundaries with your stakeholders on how they're thinking about things. And that's not an easy thing to do, especially when you're a service provider or you're an external. And so the lessons are, at least for me, I always think, okay, I'd rather be fired <laughs> where the client says, you're not right for us, than tippy-toe my way around things because I I don't have the courage to lean in and say hey in a good in a in a constructive way. Yes. It's it's very easy to point out gaps. It's harder to say, hey, we need to have a real conversation about this thing here. And it's not because we're pointing the finger, it's because we need to work through it. Yep. And I think we a lot of the times we're reluctant to do that, even me. So I think, yeah, leaning into things and drawing that, a little bit of that debate in a, in a constructive way that's solution-orientated. Like, how do we solve for this? How do we make this yeah. better? Yeah. yeah, how do we make it better? How do we yep. solve for it? That's probably number one. It's funny because the role that we play in, in, in the work that we did, I probably played a little bit more of a architect role. Yes. And, but I, also, I did that because I saw that you were holding the space in, in the dialogue, the facilitation really well. So I kind of was like, okay, well, I don't need to hold that space. But I think, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're trying to solve these challenges, it's really important to think like an architect. And so it's not easy, but you have to think strategically about how am I going to design this approach? And, you, and I think you have to be very careful in doing because you generally only have one shot. And so not just being open to say, here is a design, this is how we're thinking about this, and knowing that the first version is probably not great. Yeah. And give, being comfortable in giving that to your customer when it's not great. Yeah. And saying, here is the first, because there's, there's so many times, uh, even in the work that we did, that I landed on something and my team said to me offline, I love my team, but they're like, oh, how did you feel about like, it just all changed? 
And I'm like, well, I'm not there for my thing. You know, I don't care about the fact that it changed. I care about putting the best version of the work forward and then letting it interact with the individuals. And then hopefully it will improve or change if it needs to. So I think we, this is this kind of, we, we tend to refine too much and, and we need to be more comfortable in sharing stuff that doesn't look great before it's perfect. Yeah. Yep. Because, because it's not going to get, when you're refining it, you hold on to it. So this is, this, I, I do this a lot with my team. It's very iterative thinking, you know, it's very, you know, how do you deal, how do you become more agile? How do you become more iterative? Well, one way not to do it is to hold on to stuff and refine it, you know, because you become attached yes. very quickly and you get, and you get boxed into the thinking that you have. So the best way, in my opinion, is to put it out as soon as possible and be okay that it's going to change. And if, if it's rough, and it's not great, you're going to be more open to the change. But it's also educating your clients on that process because a lot of clients are like, well, where's the, where's the polish? And you're like, it's coming. <laughs> it's, coming. <laughs> it's, coming. <laughs> it's not here yet. Yeah. You know, and so it's very uncomfortable for them because they, they've been conditioned to say, I will, I, I will get the polish. They're used to seeing the end product. Yeah. They're not used to seeing the messiness yeah. of the process Correct, that leads yeah. up to the end product. Correct. But the yeah. end product is not always great, even though it looks polished. Yeah. So it kind of goes, well, what's the, what are we trying to solve with the end product? And is that really what we need? Yep. And so most of the time we don't know what we need and we don't know what we're trying to solve for. So the best thing that we should do is put versions of that forward as quickly as we can yep. and be vulnerable because you have to be to the fact that maybe we're not going to get it right. So that's that's probably my third one. Yeah. And, and I'd say that the, the fourth thing that connects to that is helping take your stakeholders on that journey because it's very difficult for them. Like they've trusted you and they're, and sometimes you're the only thing that they've got. They're like, I can't deliver this without you. We, we, yeah. we don't know how. <laughs> so, yes. And so you have to, you have to be very respectful to that trust, you know, and that the trust, but also the, the, the commitment that they're making hmm. and they're dealing with a lot on their plate. Hmm. And so I think you can't just be like, well, here's a rough draft. You know, you need to manage it well. But you, if you if you can think about where they're coming from and you can help help show them a path on how they're, where they're going to get there, they're going to be able to support you better, whether you're internal or you're external, because they're going to be able to see that path and they're going to be able to advocate and so on. So I think showing them the path, even though you may not know it's correct, yes. <laughs> but you'd be like, here is how we're forging forward. It might it might vary. But here's the pathway, and and being gutsy enough to be like, here is where we're going. Yes, you know, and we're okay to change it. You know, so but that's 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 being a leader. So much gold so. in that. Let me in, in true facilitation <laughs> style. Let me try and play that back, Nick. I think there was the first point was around creating a playing field where you can challenge the client to improve the mm. process and the yeah. product, and being courageous in that. The second thing was presenting the thing before it's perfect and mm. allowing it to be, encouraging it to be iterated and not becoming attached to perfection mm. so that it gets messy. And then the trust and the respect mm. that you need to, the environment of trust and respect that you need to create with the client so that they come to expect that their 
held in a safe container, even though it's even though it's still messy in the lead up to the actual workshop. Mm. And then the trust that they offer us, I'm always quite honoured by this, the trust that they offer us to walk out on stage on the day of the workshop and actually pull it all together mm. and allow our expertise mm. and judgement and knowing and backing of ourselves mm. and the things that we need to do to yeah. create that within ourselves, they trust that we're going to bring it together for them in yeah. the best way that we can. So, mm. yeah. to round that off. Yeah. It's a good summary. Awesome. So, Nick, I've noticed some things too about the way you lead your team and the way you've established your business. There are two things that I've noticed around the excellence of the systems that you've established in the back end Mm. of the business to provide this consistently awesome, not just customer experience for your clients, but for collaborators. Mm. I I benefited from your process and I see see your staff held safely in that process as well. So there's excellent systems and it's the way that you develop your people. And I thought I might just give you the opportunity to talk about how you've established Acelio, what you had in mind, what's important to you about this business. <sighs> Big questions. So I, I always say I start with this because I think we don't talk enough, openly enough about it. You know, as, when I started Acelio, it was really I didn't know what I was doing. So it was me wanting to be a practitioner and yes. I just wanted to hone in my craft and yes. do good work. And so, over time, my customers told me what Acilio should be because I started to learn what problems they had and I became very obsessed with orientating the business around the challenges or the the gaps that customers have. And so, full credit to the stakeholders and the customers, I think, because my, my team asks me this all the time, how do you know? And I go... I'm not worried. I'm not attached to what we do. We need to make sure that we're f- focusing on what's valuable for the people that we serve. And so let's just focus on what they need. And then the rest will hopefully take care of itself. So there was no grand <laughs> vision from the start, but I think what morphed out of that was two things. So one is what I mentioned around, you know, helping senior leaders create change and accelerating that. And that came from my frustration in the corporate environment where I was, <laughs> I was young and I was so driven on the work that I did and I worked with some great leaders but I also didn't really appreciate the system that I some of the system that I worked in or the systems that I worked in and so what I noticed was I was lucky luckily enough to work with courageous leaders that were pushing forward and they were always agitating the system the status quo you know because that's what change leaders do They're, they're driving change forward so that became a little bit of my purpose because I thought it's never been harder for leaders to create change and there's so much expectation of them to do that fast now and with, you know, not any more resourcing and all, all the stuff that they've got to deal with. So I just thought I think it's very lonely being a leader, whether they say it or not, and it's not an easy gig. I think it's – I think a lot of people probably wouldn't understand what leaders in any organization or any business have to go through. So, you know, I I had a – a senior leader that I did work with and she said to me, you're like my first follower and I'm a lone nut leader. And she got it from a TED talk by a guy called Derek Sivers that said the lone nut. And it was this person that goes dancing and then everyone follows them. So I stole that from her and I said, well, we're the, we're the followers of lone nut leaders that are trying to create change. <laughs> and that's how I've instilled it on the team. So the other part to that is develop, I call it developing the leaders of tomorrow. Mm. And so I've taken a very 
big development lens in the team around, you know, I say to them now, if, you know, Celia is the kind of place that you join if where you want to grow, not only in your profession, but also grow in terms of who you want to be. And it sounds very philosophical because when I, I ask them in interviews, so who do you want to be? They're like, what do you mean? You know, and I have got a very strong affinity with that because I think, again, it's, it's what's my job as a leader to help my team grow by helping them grow. I'm, I'm learning at the same time. It's not like I have all the answers and we, we don't talk enough about development. Like we don't spend enough time developing the leaders of tomorrow deliberately. And I was very lucky where someone saw something in me multiple times that decided to develop me. Mm. And it didn't, it didn't happen where I was some expert from day one, you know? So, and I think it's an obligation. I think it's a responsibility that we have to take. And I think being in your own business, you reap the rewards of that because you get the personal connection with the team. They they contribute and they develop, which means they add more value to your customers, you know, and to your clients and your clients are happy and they're happy and so on. So, it's a win-win, but it's a lot of work. So, <laughs> so but yeah, that's that's Acilio yeah, at the yeah. moment. That's That's my summary. So, two big things in that yeah. I heard is that real client orientation to make their problems your problems and to let them know that you are a true partner mm. in, the, in the process of solving that problem. And then secondly, your sense of responsibility around developing the leaders of tomorrow. Mm. And I've seen you give feedback to your team. I've seen you put hours of preparation into preparing your team to deliver Mm. reliably, robustly. I've seen you walk alongside them as little mistakes, most of which we couldn't have anticipated, some of which we could, Mm. (laughs) but small mistakes being made and the way you guide them through correcting it and making it good Mm. again Mm. and uh, i just want to acknowledge you for that because Mm. it's clearly an emphasis in your leadership style oh thanks that's okay still learning (laughs) let's talk about you mentioned who do you want to be Mm. and you asked that of your staff or at interview Mm. so let's talk a bit more about nick oh the deep questions the personal stuff how are you we're done today (laughs) and the interview's (laughs) over cut (laughs) So, Nick, how have you focused on improving your own self-leadership over Mm. the years? So, I think I focused by modeling. So, I think I, whether this comes natural to me or somehow I learned it, but I tend to look at people, leaders, anyone. It could be anyone that I look at and I, I will model them and say, what is it that they have as a trait or a skill that I admire? And how can I learn that as quickly as possible and put that in place. So, for me, I'm very reflective, I guess, around, you know, my, my strengths, but also where, where where can I improve? How can I be a better human? So, how have you become a better human through the application of those things learned through modeling? Give me some examples of things that you've done. Okay. So, you know, a simple example is, you know, how can I be more patient? You know, so I'm, I tend to be a little impatient as an individual. I like to get stuff done. And so I've had to look at different people that have a lot more patience than me. And I've had to try and take the traits or the skills that they have to do that. So one of it is some colleagues that we have, you know, so that do a lot of facilitation work and they do a lot of coaching work. 
and I did some training with them and I had to really try to understand, well, what's, what's stopping me from being patient, you know, and, and where's that coming from and how do I start to understand some of that and then what, what could I put in place to try and be a bit more patient around those things. So it's not that I'm not impatient, but I think I need to be more patient. I think it's better for me. I think it's better for my team. I think it's better for my customers. So I'm always, I'm, I'm very reflective. I don't know. I'm, I'm very critical of how do I level up and where is it that I need to improve and where am I going and where are the gaps? Yeah. You know, and so that's obviously constantly changing. Yeah. But I'm maybe too hard on myself, but I'm very, I'm very reflective on that. And then, because I just think for me personally, well, you should, you should be focusing on improving. Yep. And through doing that, you can maybe create more good. You can create more contribution. So. What a soundbite. <laughs> should, be, should be focused on improving ourselves and through that we can create more good. And I mm. think we've both built mm. businesses around mm. that sort of core philosophy. Perhaps mm. that's what, you know, why we're in a room talking together mm. today is kind of like, well, how do we get better so we can serve at a higher level and – yeah, I've noticed some things that, yes, you are self-reflective and quite self-critical mm. <laughs> around identifying opportunities to improve. But I also see you taking, like, you've got a big action orientation mm. and you do take action quickly. And once you commit to a thing that you explore, you know, you gain the knowledge around the thing, you apply the action, and then you are reflective and iterating improvement on improvement to take that forward. So, yeah. Yeah. I have very strong views on action, I think. I don't Tell know. me more. Well, there's an emotional response when I think about the action. And I'm very I'm very action orientated because I think it's one of the few ways that we truly learn, you know. And so what I've realized is that, you know, we even when we go back to conversations, you know, we're facilitating groups, you know, how do we get people doing work? You know, getting them to do the real work. Because I think that is where the learning and the struggle comes. Yes. And I think it's very, we have to be very cautious in acquiring knowledge without the application. I think today in a world where everything's just consumption, consumption. Well, that's a big criticism of workshops, isn't it? They're just talk fests. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I also think that that's because we let them be talk fests. And, you know, we, we, we spoke about like, you know, tools and, you know, giving people visual aids. They're all activities to get people working. And I hear this all the time from clients. Oh, they're senior people. They can't do that. And I go, so they don't work, you know. Well, and there's, there's a caution around, and I've never seen a senior person come to me and say, I don't do that. <laughs> so, they're like, oh, great. Like we're doing something. So I, I don't know where that comes from, but I think we need to lean more into, and this is me being a bit of a practitioner. I pride myself in being a bit of a, craftsman a practitioner we need to find our craft and we need to hone that and whatever that is for each individual but that doesn't come that comes through a little bit of knowledge but then a lot of application Mm. and i've learned that over the years just running programs and seeing that you know with experiential learning you're going to get far more learning if you the sooner you apply something i love that action learning 101 yeah love that I think those senior people at some stage in their career 
have been advised that, hey, don't contribute to this in, ca- in case you guide or shape or, mm. you know, shepherd the conversation in a way that closes down the contribution of others. And mm. I think, you know, my experience of this is through good facilitation, we can actually level the playing field yeah. from the beginning and invite them in and restate our expectation that mm. you're all here for a reason. Mm. And that's because you've got a contribution to make. And now we're going to open up the activities, the dialogue, the questioning for you to explicitly bring the contribution mm. that you're here to make. So. Yeah. yeah, so good. Action orientation. Nick, I'm curious, how do you switch off? How do you switch off to recharge? My first answer is I don't do it that well. But I switch off through projects, and that's a, that's a bad answer. But, <laughs> but I like to tinker on things. You know, I like to learn and play with something and, you know, experiment and get immersed in something new. So that might seem like work, but... That's probably my way of switching off. I'm, a, I'm an engineer originally, so I like to understand how things work. I like to break things apart. I like to immerse myself in learning something. The other one is I'm starting to switch off with my kids because I'm fascinated by learning, I think, as I watch them. So I was at the Gold Coast last week and I brought my eldest daughter with me to a workshop, which is great. She did all the material with science, you know, seven-year-old, you know, being around scientists. But I was I was fascinated in watching. So I think like just observing what's happening there, how are they learning, what are they doing, is also nice to immerse yourself in that. So projects, I'd say, yeah. kids. And probably the third thing I'd say is any activity. I'm trying to I'm trying to get a bit more healthy in terms of getting fit. Something that takes the noise away. Yeah. So any activity that requires pretty good focus for a period of time that takes the noise away, which is... The internal dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It just takes the noise. You know, you're thinking about stuff. You're constantly... People would call it the dopamine, you know, the dopamine hits. But anything that just requires focus and dedication for a period of time, physically, I think is very helpful. That's uh, really insightful. Yeah. I think you're my first guest that has said I switch off through projects and learning. And I just want to val- <laughs> no, well, I actually want to validate that mm. because allowing yourself time for the exploration of mm. new topics that are in the short term unproductive, mm. but allowing for that gentle exploration of, yeah. of a new topic, I think is a really solid learning from from this conversation. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, we need that. we need to we don't I don't I don't know, but we have we have to deliberately explore and deliberately exploring means going into new areas that we're not familiar with and not comfortable with yeah 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 yeah. and i think it's a muscle that you need i think in this world where you know we talk about ambiguity and complexity and uncertainty and all that stuff you need to you need to have that muscle honed in yeah and i think one of the easiest ways to do that is go and find things that you don't know and you're not comfortable with and learn something. <laughs> so. Start, starting a podcast, for example. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. I could, I resonate with that because I wouldn't say I started this podcast to switch off. I didn't. I started mm. it to have interesting mm. conversations with people on topics that I was curious about mm. and to explore what happens in the inside world of yeah. those people so that we can contribute to a body of knowledge around what it takes to lead sustainability change. Like that was the intent. But certainly it is uncomfortable. You know, the microphone that I use for my podcasting 
I had it sitting on my desk for six weeks before mm. I even had the courage to plug the thing in and go, yeah. right, how does this work? <laughs> and then when it came to recording the first episode, I realized I needed to be a podcast host and mm. ask semi-intelligent questions that bring out, you know, these stories yeah. and the best in people. Yeah. And I'm still, as you can tell, still learning about that. So, yeah, but that is where the learning is. And that mm. is where people ask me in my executive coaching, like, how do I become more confident? How do I go after the thing that mm. I want to do? And this action orientation mm. and the willingness to explore and learn, even as a switch off activity, when it's not your day job, this new thing you want to lean towards is quite often not the day job of the yeah. person yeah. that I'm working with. So, I just want to encourage people to give themselves space to lean in a bit towards the thing that they're chasing in mm. life and to allow themselves unproductive time, in inverted commas, to explore that territory. I don't, I don't know how you think about this, but I think – it keeps you grounded because I've noticed this as I, I work with more senior leaders, I'm, you know, I'm s slowly stepping up, you know, in terms of, I guess, the focus that I have, you know, I'm, I'm becoming, I'm a practitioner, I'm a business owner, I'm trying to be a good leader and so on. And I think it's, it's very easy to get disconnected from reality, you know, and, and maybe there's a side to that that says, well, you don't have to do everything. I'm not advocating that you have to do everything, but I think it's very good to be in touch with, that's what it takes. And that's the action piece. Mm. Because if you lose touch of that as a leader, then how, and you can't resonate with what that looks like, and you don't have a, an appreciation maybe for what it takes, how are you going to lead teams and push push things forward when you're, you have no connection with that? You haven't wrestled with yeah, it yourself. And, and, and your, your, your team and your stakeholders, people see, I think they see, they sense that. Yep. And so I think- Learning is about being connected so that when you do have to do real stuff and the action, you have an appreciation for what it takes. And you don't say – the worst thing is you say, oh, yeah, it's not that it's not that hard. And it's like, great, have you done it? <laughs> so, but it's not that you need to be an expert. It's just that you gain a stronger appreciation for what's there. And you might be able to lead better through that yeah. because you actually can connect with it better. You can connect with the yeah. discomfort of the process of learning mm -hmm. and the wrestling. Yeah, love it. So good, Nick. So, Nick, at the end of every episode, we ask, what are the two or three most important things being required of you as a leader in bringing about positive change in the world? Well, one I'll say because I went to a recent Tony Robbins event, so it's front of mind. But I think you need to show up in a good state as a leader. And it's actually so simple but so difficult to do. And so I think the first one is, yeah, if you can – Whatever's going on, if you can try and show up in a state that supports your team or the people that you work with, even sometimes you might not be having a great day, we're all humans, I think it's going to help tremendously. So, Show up in a good state, number one. This may sound controversial. Have standards. And, and I, I say, like, set standards around what good looks like and – I say that not because they need to meet my standards as a leader. It's we should be setting standards for the excellence that we want to bring as a group, as a collective, and we should be proud of that. So I think, you know, what is it that we want to do that we're proud of and what are the standards that we set around that? And I think sometimes as a leader, you might say, hey, let's try this. And everyone might think that's a bit nuts or whatever. But what you find is then your teams and your colleagues and your peers start setting the standard. So I think, yeah, let's not be afraid 
to set some standards about what we think great looks like. Love that. Thanks for saying that out loud. (laughs) Okay. Be kind. Yeah, I think for me, I think over the last maybe five to seven years at least, I've learned that the way you have the conversation is more important than what you have to say. So I spend so much time now thinking about how do I have this conversation? How do I deliver this in the best way that helps the individual or moves them forward? And how can I be very deliberate in making sure I do that with the best of intent, but also delivering it so that that person can use that as a stepping stone for what, what, where they want to go. And in, in the world that we're in today, it's the last thing usually. It's like, no, let's take a step back. Let's pick the right time to have the conversations. Let's think carefully about the messages. Let's deliver them with intent and some care. And I think if you do that well, even though it's hard, then you'll get through most things. So I think, yeah, being kind and being really deliberate about the messages that you want to deliver. I love that. What a note to end on. Thank you so much, Nick. So be kind, have standards, and show up in a good state. So good. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and all of the gold that you've offered today on The Secret Life of Leaders. If people want to get in touch with you for facilitation or to follow you in some way, because you do make some funny videos occasionally about yeah. what it's like to work <laughs> at Acilio, they can do that via LinkedIn. Yeah, look me up on LinkedIn, Nick Rakus, or look up Acilio. Yeah. The company page, we're there. That's the best place to find us. Awesome. Thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I hope you're as inspired as I was by this episode with Nick Rakus. Certainly, if you're tackling sustainability change at scale across the landscape of policy, industry, and business, and the community, you will require broad and deep stakeholder engagement. We hope this episode has helped you develop your understanding about what it is to truly partner with a facilitator, and you're invited to reflect on processes where you might require partnership to create a positive and engaged stakeholder experience. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Secret Life of Leaders. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We would love for you to share this podcast with friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested and inspired by its content. You can follow me, Angela Koning, on LinkedIn or Instagram. And until next time, lead yourself well and everything else falls into place.